Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Julio Cruz. I'm the executive pastor here at Trinity, and today I get the opportunity to preach. Uh, ben, our pastor, has been going through this series that he has called uh, The House That Jesus Builds from the Gospel of Matthew and other passages. And I think that our text today, our story today, uh, will fall under that uh, overarching theme. So we will be talking about the Lord's Last Supper from Mark chapter 14. So if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open them up in Mark chapter 14. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and read the text uh, this morning, and then I'm going to come back to it, um, and we're going to go and, and study together. But Mark 14 verse 12 uh, reads like this. It says, uh, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened. And one by one, they said to him, surely you don't mean me. It is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The son of man will go just that it is written about him, but woe to the man who betrays the son of man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and then he had given thanks, and he broke it and, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Hey, take this. This is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine, until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of heaven. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity that you give to us to gather to worship you this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit will guide us. I, I pray that your Holy Spirit will teach us today. I pray, God, that you would give us ears to hear and to listen to your word. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So I went online and uh, I uh, Googled strange rituals. And I found some interesting stuff that I want to share with you. Uh, the first ritual that I found is, is birthday candles. Uh, the Greeks were the first to put candles on cakes offered to their gods. And they thought that the smoke of the candles would go up to heaven and take their wishes to their gods. 
The Germans picked up on this tradition and then uh, it stuck and it was spread all over the world. It's still to the point that we put candles on our cakes today. Just as a just a raise your hand. Did you, did you know that? Did you know that that's where we get our candles? Yeah, right. It changes a little bit of how we look at it now. Um, a wedding's uh, a wedding's best man. A wedding's best man. This tradition began when a wedding was a financial transaction. As you can imagine, sometimes transactions, financial transactions, can go bad. Uh, so the best man would be the person responsible uh, to intercede for the groom if it was necessary. So he would take to the wedding a sword, and if the father uh, of the bride would have second thoughts about the groom he would make sure that things went as planned. All right. The, the next one, uh, another, another ritual, uh, the pinky promise. It originated by Chinese mafia. It is the highest of all promises, an unbreakable oath. If one broke the oath, the wrong party had the right to cut off their pinky. It's changed the way I make promises to my daughters, for sure, by the way. Now, these are universal rituals, but we all have our rituals, don't we? You know, things that we expect them to happen a certain way, activities that we do the same day, uh, time after time, and there's nothing wrong with them. You know, we tried something, we liked it, and then we keep doing it, and it becomes a ritual. I think that we all have rituals, whether it is a daily ritual, maybe it's your morning routine, what you do when you wake up, or your bedtime routine. I remember that growing up, when I was a little boy, my mom would always tuck me to bed, and she would come, and then she would pray with me, and she would give me a kiss, and then she would say this weird prayer that she came up with, and she would say, hey, I hope that uh, you dream with the angels and with the Lord, and that God will keep you safe today and forever. And it was a cute prayer, right? But every time that you go in the Bible, actually, and, and think about angels, the first thing that the angels say is like, hey, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid, right? But, you know, for me, I sometimes had a very difficult time going to bed without her prayer. You know, I think of uh, uh, weekly rituals. We drive to church, come through the same doors every time. We sit in our same spot. And what a bummer if somebody took our spot, right? <laughs> we tried it once. We liked it. And we kept doing it. And it's okay. There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. And then we have our yearly rituals. You know, these are the, the things that we do with our families. Maybe it's a family vacation. For some of you, you may go to the same place every year. Others of you, maybe you have a hunting trip that you take with your friends every year. It is the, um, the Christmas celebration. It is the Easter celebration. And it's also the, the Thanksgiving celebration. And that's where our story today uh, takes place. You know, it, it is... Uh, it is a place, we're going to talk about a story, a meal, a special location, a celebration of an ancient holiday. And the main purpose, by the way, of the author of this book, the book of Mark, is to present Jesus, his works, and his teachings. In other words, it is to present what Jesus is all about. And he draws us in, not as spectators, but as participants, inviting us to be parts of this amazing story that would change the world forever. 
So Mark, the author of this book, is not going to spend a lot of time on details. You know, he doesn't even tell us about the birth of Jesus. There's no Christmas on Mark. You know, he starts, and in the very first chapter, he covers what other Gospels covers in three or four different chapters. So instead, you know, Mark just jumps into action. And as you read this book, you get this sense that he can't wait to tell us what he knows. In our text today, he tells us about an event right before the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus began his ministry. When he began his ministry, he said many things, by the way. And many of the things that he said would be offensive to religious leaders. So the religious leaders would constantly try to trap him in his words, so hoping that the crowds would just leave him. And when the crowds left him, then they would have the opportunity to seize him and, and kill him. In Mark chapter 14, verse 1, it says that two days before the Jewish yearly celebration, the chief priests and the teachers of the law were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But they said, hey, not during the festival or the people may riot. But later in verse 10, Judas went to them and presented them with an amazing opportunity to hand Jesus to them. And they could not resist. So Matthew 14, verse 12 says, On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? The festival of unleavened bread had been a part of Jewish culture for hundreds of years, and it was a commemoration of God's greatest act of deliverance for the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. It was also known as the Passover. And, you know, from, from Exodus chapter 12, we learned that there were specific instructions that God gave to Moses so that Moses could give to the people. You know, they were the Jewish family, the Israeli families were to slaughter a male, a one-year-old male lamb without defect. And then they used its blood to mark the door frames of their homes. And by doing this, God protected them from the destroyer, the angel of death would not touch them. Exodus 12 is fascinating. I really encourage you to read it this week if you have a chance. But this is the event that, G, that Jews from around the world would be celebrating during Passover. In fact, faithful Jewish worshipers would come to Jerusalem and uh, from all over the empire, some people estimate that there were about a million people, a million Jewish that would come, Jews that would come to the city of Jerusalem to celebrate. So as you can imagine, it was a packed place. It's estimated that about 100,000 um, lambs were required for the, for the festivities that they had. So it's busy. And because it's busy, it requires planning and it requires preparation. Jesus and his disciples, they, they come and they're going to celebrate this, the Passover meal to remember, this is something that they had been doing every year. Verse 13 says, so he sent two of his disciples. And by the way, from the gospel of Luke, we learned that this is Peter and John. And it says, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. I mean, can you imagine trying to find a man carrying a jar of water among a million people, right? Uh, when I read this, I felt like, man, that would be almost impossible, but maybe it wasn't. You know, carrying water was typically women's work. 
So if you think for a moment, if one were to ask me, hey, Julio, go to Lake Nona Town Center on a Friday night and find a man wearing a Scottish kilt, it wouldn't be hard. You know, it wouldn't be difficult for me to find that. You know, the chance of seeing a man wearing a Scottish kilt in Scotland is huge, but not so at our town center uh, here in Lake Nona. Uh, verse 14 says, Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room upstairs. It's furnished and it's ready. Make preparations for us there. See, Jesus had been in this area for several days now, so uh, probably he made these arrangements previously. Maybe this gentleman was a friend. It is very possible that this house, by the way, is the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, the house that Jesus went to to see the 11 disciples after his resurrection, uh, the house that uh, where probably the church gathered to pray for the first time where they received the Holy Spirit back in Acts chapter 2. Verse 18 says, the disciples left, went into the city, and they found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. They probably came back because the next verse, verse 17 says, When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. And while they were reclining at the table eating, he said these things to him, to them. By the way, the, the table was this U-shaped kind of table that uh, was about six or eight inches from the, from the ground. And people would lay on their elbows on a cushion around the perimeter of the table. As you can imagine, the, the opening was where, where the food would come. So people are celebrating. They're, they're having a good time. The disciples are there. And they're probably remembering, telling stories. And they're having a really, and a really amazing meal, like a Thanksgiving meal. You know, hand me the turkey, the mashed potatoes, the, the, the pie. For them, it was the lamb. Unleavened bread, spices, you know, the fixings, you know, the typical traditional Passover meal. For the disciples, this is just like the other celebrations they've done many times before. But for Jesus, this is more than a meal. For Jesus, this is more than a Passover celebration because he knows he is about to become the Passover lamb who will be slain to free people, not from the bondage of slavery, but from the bondage of sin. So he said to them, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. I mean, think about the tension for a moment, like any, any other good holiday, right? Things got awkward really fast. Verse 19 says that they were sad, and, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me, right? We know how the story ends, but it's hard to understand the range of emotions that the disciples were experiencing at this moment. One by one they take their turn and they ask, Is it, is it I? Because they can't see around them any likely candidate but themselves. And it was the right question to ask, in my opinion, and it is the right question for us to ask, maybe at this moment. Is it, is it I? Surely you do not mean me, Jesus. Verse 20, in verse 20, Jesus said, it is, it is one of the 12, he replied. 
one who dips bread into the bowl with me. From the other Gospels, we learned that actually, probably as the disciples are going around, Judas comes, Judas turned, comes along, and, and then he says, hey, is it me? And Jesus actually tells him, yeah, it's you. But what's important about this is that Jesus is not surprised by anything of this, like this. He knew that he's, this is not something that Judas came up with. This was not Judas's idea. The betrayal of Jesus was established before the foundation of the earth. And at this point, Jesus knows that everything actually is going according to plans. Is it easy? Absolutely not. But God didn't force Judas to do this evil act. God's work, God works through the will and the choices of his creatures. And Judas was doing exactly what Judas wanted to do. And you, Judas, amazingly enough, is not the only one at risk here. Verse 27, later on in the chapter, um, Jesus said to all the disciples, he told them, you will all fall away. And Peter said, even if all fall away, I will not, I will not. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. <laughs> I pinky promise. <laughs> That'll be a sermon for another day when he lost his finger. But, but there's more. Now that he's really got their attention, now that Jesus had interrupted this meal, Jesus is about to start a whole new covenant that will echo throughout generations to come. Verse 22 says, it reads like this, while they were eating, Jesus took bread and we had given, when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. And he said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. See, this would have been probably strange for the disciples. I mean, they were used to seeing Jesus say things and do things that they didn't quite understood. But Jesus is doing is saying something that they didn't expect it. If you think about it, you know, he didn't have these packaged little communion cups that we have now, or even this special communion bread that probably we grew up having at church. Um, but he grabs the bread off the table, unleavened bread, very familiar to them. It was the bread they used every year. And then he gives, us a, gives it a completely new significance. And he grabs the drink and the same drink they've had plenty of times before. And all of a sudden, he gives it an entirely new meaning. I think of this this way. That, that we all have something that anyone looks like just to anybody, that to anybody else, it looks just like another item. You know, but for us, it's much more significant. You know, you think about this, uh, maybe you saved something that reminds you of a grandparent, a, a parent, or a child, somebody who passed away, and, and maybe it's just a garment, maybe it's just an item, and somebody will look at that particular item and think, oh, that's just that. 
But for you, it has, an, it has emotion. And it has a greater meaning. Maybe you say something that means a lot to you because you used it to bring your firstborn from home from the hospital. You know, or, or maybe it was something from your first date with a person who later become your spouse. For everybody else, it's just an item. But for you, it has greater significance. You would never give it away. You know, I, I know a man who paints his mom's tomb every year. Every year he travels his uh, two hours uh, from his place to, to his town, the town that he grew up, and he paints uh, the tomb. And he takes all day there painting this tomb. And I didn't understand why somebody would do that. I mean, everybody knows that uh, the cheapest paint lasts more than a year, okay? But he would go there, and, and why would it take him so long? And then I realized... <laughs> That while he's painting that tomb, he's remembering the laughter. He's remembering the gifts. He's remembering the trips, the meals, the parties, the celebration, the hugs, the kisses, the hurts. He's remembering those words that his mom used to tell him, hey, no matter what, we will always be together. The hurts. The cancer. See, this is a major shift. It is a big change because Jesus is changing the Passover to the institution of the Lord's Supper. He's taking an ordinary item, ordinary items, giving them a whole new significance and founding the covenant that Christian people will remember forever. And of course, the disciples don't understand this yet. They have no idea that in just a few hours, their world, not just their holiday meal, is going to be turned totally upside down. Yet knowing that these moments would be seared in their hearts and minds in a very short time, Jesus is taking this ritual and starting a whole new covenant. See, it's as if Jesus is saying, just as the Israelites sacrificed a Passover lamb to ensure their safety and their deliverance hundreds of years ago, I am the Passover lamb for you now. I am the lamb without defect. My blood will be shed so that God's judgment will pass over you. This is no longer about what God did hundreds of years ago. It's about what I am doing now. My body will be broken for you. My blood will be shed for you. And as a result, you will be delivered not from oppressors, but from the hold of sin. I will be nailed to the cross and die on your behalf. And in doing so, he would take the penalty for our sin, for your sin, for my sin. Romans 3.23 says that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For a moment, think about the most righteous person that you know. You know, a person that has integrity, that has great character. A person who is kind and gentle and meek, a righteous person. And their righteousness is not enough to cure the disease and the separation that you and I have with our Heavenly Father. But Jesus comes into the picture. We all fall short. And only through Him can we come to our Heavenly Father 
See, Jesus' blood would literally become for us the blood of the Lamb that would cover the door of our lives and protect us from God's judgment. He's the Passover Lamb whose blood now marks the door frames of our lives. So I want to take communion a little bit different today. In a moment, we're going to do that. You know, when I think of, of communion, there, there's so many questions that can come to mind. You know, like people want to ask, like, what kind of bread do we use? What kind of juice do we use? Um, who can administer communion? Who, who can participate? Who can partake? And how often do we do this? That's my favorite one. You know, because people often say, hey, why do we have to do this, this every week? It loses just the significance of it. And I think of it in terms of kissing my wife every time I leave my home and my wife kissing me every time she leaves her home. And there's not been you know, a one time when I felt like, not again. <laughs> you know. So we do it every week. We do it because it is important. We do it because it's Jesus' promise to be with us. So I invite you to stand with me this morning. And I want you to take your communion cups. If you didn't get one, we have them just in front of me, right, right in the back. Um, so you can go ahead and, and get it. And, and, and I want you to know that Jesus right now, he, seemed, he died for us. And he invites us to come and partake with him. And he invites us to eat. He invites us to drink. He invites us to be nurtured by him, to be strengthened by him. And this is far more than a ritual. 1 Corinthians 11 says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Would you, would you eat the bread? In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you drink the cup? Father and Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your perfect plan to bring redemption to our lives. And there's nothing we could have done or we could do to restore our relationship with you, Heavenly Father. But you send your son to die on the cross for us. And for that, we're grateful. And today we remember that and we live that. To your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. May the grace of, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Have a great week.